This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to a Tuesday morning here on Sports Country Radio. It's a uh, quiet day here in the Northeast, but it is not going to be a quiet uh, one here Wednesday night into Thursday. We are expecting our first winter storm of the season. And uh, according, if you listen to uh, uh, the weather forecasters and read the newspaper, they're saying it may be uh, the biggest storm to hit this area in a long, long time. So uh, we shall see. They're calling right now for at least a foot of snow here Wednesday night into Thursday, perhaps as much as 18 inches. Yay. So, well, uh, yeah, well, the good news is, I guess, uh, there's a decent chance we're going to have a white Christmas because the temperatures are going to stay low. So, uh We'll see, but uh, if you're in the Northeast, uh, get yourself ready and stay safe. They're saying blizzard conditions possible Wednesday night into Thursday, so uh, yippee. Uh, Before we get to sports, uh, the Trump purging continues. Uh, William Barr, the attorney general, has decided that he is going to resign. There has been a lot of tension between the president and his attorney general uh, since Barr refused to kind of sign off on the whole um, voter fraud thing, uh, you know, basically coming out and saying, we, you know, we looked into it and we haven't found anything that did not go over well with the president because he expects everybody to be a yes man and a toady. And, uh, so, uh, William Barr is resigning, uh, on the 23rd of December and, uh, the assistant attorney general, uh, Jeff Rosen, uh, will take over, uh, for the final month before, uh, the Biden's uh, begin their tenure in the White House. And the Electoral College met yesterday. That's a done deal. And thank God it's over. Trump's, Trump's not giving up, but, uh, you know, <laughs> shocking, right? All right, let's get to football. Game of the year in the NFL last night. You know, and, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, this was this was a fun, fun game last night. The Baltimore Ravens beat the Cleveland Browns for the second time this season. But this was a much different game than the first time these two teams played. I mean, uh, the Browns got beat 38-6 to first game of the season by Baltimore. This was not that team last night. Um, it, and it looked like for a while this had the potential to be a bit of a blowout Baltimore took a 28-14 to lead early in the third quarter. And matter of fact, led by 14 with four minutes to go in the third. And then Cleveland fought its way back, actually took a lead uh, with uh, six and a half minutes to go on a uh, five-yard run by Baker Mayfield. 
Baltimore bounced right back. And uh, with about uh, two minutes to play, a 44-yard pass from Lamar Jackson to Marquise Brown. You know, and so then you're thinking, well, okay, it's over. Well, Baker Mayfield in about two minutes, or actually two minutes, in about, well, less than a minute, got his team down the field. Kareem Hunt takes a 22-yard touchdown pass into the end zone. Game was tied. And then uh, Lamar Jackson did his thing. Got him into field goal range. Justin Tucker, a 55-yard bomb with two seconds left, and then it was a safety at the end as the Browns tried about 87 laterals to try a, a desperation play, uh, and it didn't go. The only the only bad part about that was is if you gambled on the game, I believe, uh, I don't know what the line was, but you know that, that extra two points at the end could have been the thing that uh, could have caused you to lose a, lose a bet. You know, if you had gambled on the game and it was, uh, it was say, uh, you had the Browns in three and a half points, well, that safety caused it to be a five-point deficit, and you would have lost. But, um, but the big story in this game last night was Lamar Jackson. In the beginning of this game, he looked like he was going to run for three hundred yards. He had only he only completed, I think, five or six passes for, through the first three quarters of this game. He had run for over 100 yards. And then he left the game. It was the most bizarre thing. Nobody knew what was going on. All of a sudden, he runs to the locker room. And, you know, I mean, he it wasn't, you know, he, he, did, he wasn't limping. You know, nobody was grabbing onto an arm or a shoulder. I mean, he, he nobody really knew what was going on. Come to find out what he was going on, he was cramping up. He was dehydrated. So he went back to the locker room, and they hooked him up to an IV, and they were giving him fluids. You know, and when he left the game, when he left the field, and they had to go to Trace McSorley, their backup, they were in big trouble. And it looked like it was going to be even worse because late in the fourth quarter, on a third down, McSorley suffers a knee injury, has to leave the game. Well, just as McSorley goes down and is limping to the sideline, we see that Lamar Jackson has run back out onto the field. Now, it didn't happen because of the McSorley injury. He was already on his way back out there. But now he comes trotting out of the locker room, and he's got to be the savior because your backup quarterback is down. It's fourth down and five. So the game, you know, you're losing the game. It's in the balance right here. So you you haven't played in a quarter because they're pumping you full of fluids. And he comes out of the locker room on fourth down. They get the first down. They end up scoring the touchdown. And then when they get the ball back after Cleveland retook the lead, all of a sudden Lamar Jackson, who wasn't, you know, throwing the ball very well early in this game, completes, I think, five passes after coming out of the locker room or six passes after being, you know, cramping up. And they end up winning the game. He went 11 for 17 for 163 yards. And he ran it nine times for 124 more. Now, we said this, you know, the other day, that if the Ravens were going to have any chance that 
Lamar Jackson had to put this team on his back. This is the guy that is the reigning MVP in the NFL, and he had to be the difference maker. Well, he did it against Dallas last week when they won by 17, and he does it here, you know, a little bit more dramatic here, you know, winning it by five. And the funny part was there was at one point he was coming out, and the first thing that I thought of was Willis Reed. Now, if you're not my age, you won't remember, but Willis Reed was a star for the New York Knicks uh, back in the 70s and left the game injured, and it looked like the Knicks were in big trouble. He comes trotting out of the locker room at the end of the game and ends up carrying his team to a victory. Now, that's the first thing I thought of. And what was so funny last night was while I'm watching the game, Right after that thought came to my mind, Steve Levy, who's doing the play-by-play for ESPN on Monday Night Football, says, you know, uh, you know, I was going to mention Willis Reed, but then I figured I'd lose half the audience, so I didn't bother because nobody would know what I was talking about. He and I went to the same place, and this is exactly what Lamar Jackson did last night. And if you look now, Baltimore has put itself in good shape to at least make the playoffs. This, you know, this really, if you're the Miami Dolphins, you've got to be scared to death now because this Baltimore team is rolling. And next week on Sunday, they get to play one-win Jacksonville at home. The following week, they get the New York Giants. Not a very good football team. Regardless of what happened in the NFC least and the, you know, the fact that they were in first place there for a short time, the Giants are not a very good football team. Baltimore gets the Giants at home two days after Christmas, and then they finish up the season at two-win Cincinnati. Their three remaining opponents have a grand total of eight wins this year. So you would expect that this Baltimore team is now going to finish the season 11-5. and Now, they trail the Cleveland Browns right now by one game. Now, but they have the tiebreaker. So if they end up tied with the Browns, the Browns are screwed. <laughs> but if you look at the Browns' schedule, it gets even more fascinating. The Browns have to go to the New York Giants next Sunday night. Again, not a great football team. Five wins. Five and eight. Nine and four Cleveland. The following week on the 27th, they go back to New York to take on the winless New York Jets. So let's say that both Cleveland and Baltimore win their next next two games. Not a far-fetched scenario. Well, then we go into that last week where Baltimore goes to Cincinnati. It gets really interesting because Cleveland has a home game, but that home game is against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Sunday, January 3rd, final home game of the season or final game of the season for Cleveland is the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, if you're Cleveland, you're probably going to need that game 
to guarantee a playoff spot or to not end up being the sixth seed. It could be for a playoff spot, depending on how the rest of the schedule shakes out. And let's remember, Cleveland played Pittsburgh in Cleveland back in the middle of October and got crushed 38-7. to So if you look at that, I mean, you know, Pittsburgh and Baltimore tuned them up in the first two meetings. Now, this was not the same Cleveland team yesterday. There's no question about it. They looked uh, dangerous, this Cleveland team. But this schedule shakes out for Baltimore to almost guarantee them a playoff spot. It's going to be hard for them to lose one of those three games. It really is. So then, you know, if again, if you're the Miami Dolphins, you're going, uh-oh, you know, we have five losses the same as the Baltimore Ravens, but our schedule is not necessarily as favorable as the Ravens. If you're Miami, in order to get in, you have to beat New England at home. Not a, not a, not impossible. Now, New England did beat Miami the first time that they played this season, 21 to 11, but it was the first game of the season. That's when, remember that first game? Remember those days? That was when everybody was saying, we need to re-sign Cam Newton for to a long-term extension. He needs to be our quarterback for, you know, until he retires right now. That was week one. Not the same New England team. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that they beat New England. Then they have to go to Las Vegas. Now, Vegas is still fighting for a playoff spot. Vegas is 7-6, and six, but their defense stinks. It's absolutely horrendous. But Vegas has the Chargers this week on Thursday night. That could be a win. So you, you could put them in the category of 8-6. and six before they play Miami, that's going to be a huge game because they're still going to be in a playoff hunt with the Denver Broncos waiting the last game of the season. So that's going to be a hungry Vegas team. And then the last regular season game for the Dolphins, they have to go to Buffalo. So if you're Miami, your chances of running the table and going 11-5 and are not very good. Home with New England and then on the road at Vegas and Buffalo. Good luck. So the Dolphins are in trouble, which is good news if you're Cleveland. You know, and then the other teams that you have to worry about if you're the Cleveland Browns, assuming that Baltimore runs the table, and I I don't think that that's far-fetched. You know, and if you're in a tiebreaker situation for Cleveland, you know, you look at Tennessee. Tennessee right now only has four losses the same as Cleveland, but Tennessee has the Green Bay Packers coming up, waiting for them on Sunday the 27th. Now, they played Detroit first at home, but then they go to Green Bay and to Houston. You know, and that Green Bay game with the best player in the NFL right now, as far as I'm concerned, Aaron Rodgers, or at least maybe the best quarterback because – you can make a case Derrick Henry for the Tennessee Titans uh, is, you know, the best running back in the league right now. But Tennessee's going to have their hands full with that Green Bay team. And then they've got Houston on the road. And Houston's 4-9, and nine, but that's still a dangerous Houston team. And then there's the Indianapolis Colts who are 
currently tied atop the division with Tennessee, and the Colts finish up again with only one tough game. They have Houston at home, but then they go to Pittsburgh, and then they have Jacksonville at home. So there's a lot of wins for these teams going down the stretch. And right now, the only team I would say that is out of this is Miami. I just don't see Miami being able to run the table. And in order to get into the playoffs, they're going to have to because Baltimore is going to run the table. They're going to be 11-5. and five. Cleveland is likely to be 11-5. and five. And then you have Indianapolis and Tennessee. We could have a couple of teams there that finish out 11-5, and five, and then the, the playoff picture is going to be uh, – we're going to need Steve Kornacki. They've got him on Sunday Night Football. We're going to need that to figure out what, what the tiebreakers are going to look like. But that was a different Cleveland Browns team last night, but now the Ravens have put themselves in a position. You know, last night they lose, done. But now at 8-5, and five, they're getting in. I just don't see how they don't. I don't. You know, now the other thing from last night, what was amazing, nine rushing touchdowns last night. Nine. Uh, And they were the top two rushing teams in the NFL, so you kind of expected that. That tied a league record for the most rushing touchdowns in a game by two teams combined. Folks, this is a record that goes back to 1922, before there was a forward pass. (laughs) That was when all you did was run the football. It goes all the way back to 1922 when Rock Island and Evansville did it. And then in another game that season, uh, Racine and Louisville did it. 1922. So... (laughs) It's been a long time. Five rushing touchdowns for Baltimore, four rushing touchdowns for Cleveland. So, but that was by far, I think, the most entertaining game I have watched this year. And uh, these last three weeks are going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to talk to Dan Zampano this week. Our NFL correspondent, of course, will be on with us on Friday. Uh, He's going to have a lot of fun breaking this down. Uh, One of the other things that came out last night, the comment was made, during the game last night, I can't remember which uh, uh, which announcer said it, but the, the, they announced that the NFL is not going to be getting preferential treatment as far as getting the coronavirus vaccine. And my first reaction was, well, no crap. You know, and it begs the question, was this was this ever really a consideration? You know, and and one of the and the, the the announcer that said it last night, and it wasn't Steve Levy. It was one of the it was one of the color guys. I can't remember which one it was, but you know what he said was is that when he heard that, he breathed a sigh of relief. And I would think so because it's football. I'm going to tell you something. If and I know football is the nine million pound gorilla in the United States, you know, it's a multi billion dollar industry and everybody loves football. But can you imagine what the screams would have been like in this country if somehow the NFL started vaccinating their players and coaches prior to healthcare workers or the elderly getting the vaccine? Oh, my God. 
So I hope that wasn't something that was ever really considered. And I, I read something on, you know, AP this morning and everybody in the NFL said the same thing. You know, uh, the head of the players association, uh, uh, uh DeMar Smith, uh, Alan Sills, who's the chief medical officer in the NFL said that, you know, we're in harmony with the union. It's vital that the frontline healthcare workers and other essential service workers are at the front of the line. Well, good. No kidding. But why was this even brought up? Unless this had somehow been discussed somehow, how did this even come up? Because if this was the NHL or Major League Soccer or even the NBA, nobody would have been talking about these guys getting the vaccine ahead of time. But somehow, the NFL, somebody actually thought that that was a good idea? I mean, maybe it was just something that was floated on social media by some idiot on Twitter. I don't know. But the fact that this even had to be addressed kind of shocked me a little bit. Uh, a couple of other NFL notes before we go to a break. Um, the Eagles have announced that Jalen Hurts will start Again, this Sunday at Arizona. Well, no kidding. Again, this goes under the category of duh. Uh, after they beat the New Orleans Saints, the top-rated defense in the NFL, 24-21 behind Hurts, there was no question that he was going to start against the Arizona Cardinals on Sunday. Again, the Eagles are still in the playoff hunt, 4-8-1, and one, trailing uh, the Washington Redskins. Oh, why? I keep calling him that. The Washington football team, who is and 6-7, I mean, the Eagles still have an outside shot. You know, they could go 7-8-1. and one. Now, Washington would have to collapse a little bit, as would the New York Giants have to, you know, kind of back up as it looks like they're going to. But uh, So there's no question that, that Hurts was going to start. You know, the question for the Eagles becomes, what are they going to do long-term? If you remember... Carson Wentz signed a four-year contract extension last June, in June of 2019. Not like June a few months ago, like June of last year. That doesn't start until next season. And the problem with this deal is that of that $128 million that Wentz is due over the four years starting in 2021, so through 2024 is that 108 million of that is guaranteed. And his salary cap hit next year is like 34 and a half million dollars even if they release him or trade him. They're going to take a huge hit on the salary cap and you know look Carson Wentz has been terrible this year. There's no question. I still think he's very talented, but and it hasn't just been his fault. The Eagles have had a ton of injuries, and their offensive line has done a horrible job of taking care of him. Wentz was sacked 50 times. 50. He's lucky he is still upright and moving. Um, and no, Jalen Hurts did not get sacked by the Saints. He's definitely a lot more mobile than Wentz, no question about that. And that with that offensive line situation right now, this is the right move. I just don't know what the Eagles are going to do long term. Tells, I mean, I would think that Carson Wentz has got to be your guy. You're in, you're on the hook for 108 million bucks. 
Might as well play him. Uh, one other quarterback switch for this coming week, uh, Jacksonville only has one win. They are going back to Gardner Minshew uh, against the Baltimore Ravens. I don't know whether that will make any difference. Uh, but, you know, Minshew hasn't played since week seven. He hurt his thumb and got replaced by Mike Glennon. And um, Minshew was ready to play the last couple of weeks, and they stayed with Glennon despite how things were going. Now, they took Glennon out last week and replaced him with Minshew. Minshew came on and uh, played pretty well. You know, and if you look at Minshew's numbers this year in the eight appearances, he's completed 65% of his passes for over 2,000 yards, 14 touchdowns, and five interceptions. Why he wasn't back in the lineup immediately, God knows. But he will play against Baltimore this week. Again, I don't think it's going to be enough. But, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe they can give him a little bit of a game. Wouldn't count on it. But Minshew Mania is back in Jacksonville this week. It's uh, 31 minutes past here. We're going to take a break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It's 34 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the Wake Up Call here on a Tuesday morning. Um, some news out of college football in the uh, Pac-10 title game. Um, a bit of a change this weekend. Washington was scheduled to play number 13 USC uh, for the title on Friday, but yesterday Washington announced that it has withdrawn from the title game uh, simply because they have had so many issues with the coronavirus that they didn't even have 53 scholarship players available, so they weren't going to be able to field a team. Not only did they not have 53 scholarship players available, they had nobody that could play the offensive line on Friday, either scholarship players or walk-ons because of positive tests or contact tracing. So, I mean, there was no way they were going to be able to play. So now that means that 3-2 uh, and two Oregon will step up and they will take on uh, USC uh, for the title. And uh, it, it kind of everything kind of trickles down because with the title game this weekend and, of course, with the small number of games that teams have been able to play, the conference had scheduled – uh, other games in conference play this week against teams not involved in the title game, and one of those games was supposed to be uh, involving Oregon. They were supposed to play Colorado uh, on Saturday, but because of uh, of Oregon having to step in for Washington, Colorado's kind of left without a game. Uh, Washington has said they still hope to play in a bowl game, and you know, which sounds ludicrous at you know on the face of it. They're three and one. They've played four games. And yet they're thinking about going to a bowl game, uh, you know. And I don't. You look. Here's the thing. We all know that this is such an odd year. So I guess a team with that kind of record going to a bowl game isn't out of the realm of possibility. Maybe maybe it shouldn't be. Just like they're making exceptions for U.S. or for Ohio State to be able to play in the Big Ten championship, despite only playing five games. So maybe it's not that big a deal. But to me, you have all these teams that have been able to play games and they have figured out a way to do it, and yet you have the Pac-12 and the Big Ten who decided that they weren't going to play football, right? So while the other 
conferences, the ACC and the American Conference and the SEC started playing right away and managed to get a bunch of games in. The Pac-12 and the Big Ten come to the party late, try to jam in a schedule in a short amount of time knowing that there's no way it's going to happen. You're going to have delays because of the coronavirus. And yet to have these teams that or these conferences that decided not to play and then said, well, wait a minute, the money's too big, we're going to play. Because remember, this was all about the money. This wasn't about safety of the kids or anything. This was about, well, crap, the SEC's playing, the ACC's playing. They're going to get all the money for the playoffs. They're going to get all that bowl money. They're going to get all that college football playoff money. We're going to be out of, wait a minute, screw the kids, we're going to play. So to have these leagues that stopped play and then turned around and started play, to start making exceptions for these teams and allowing them into bowl games and allowing them into championships when they shouldn't be, like Ohio State, is ludicrous to me. I'm sorry. And I, and I get it. I get Ohio State is still probably one of the four or five best teams in the country. They probably are. But at the same time, your conference made this decision not to play at the beginning of the year, and which, by the way, I still think is the right decision. I still think the fact that there's a college football season at all is stupid. The pros I don't have a problem with. These guys are getting paid millions of dollars. I didn't. I still don't believe we should putting, be putting these young kids at risk playing college football or college basketball, for that matter. I thought they should have waited to start college basketball until the first of the year, and a lot of schools still are because there's been so many positive tests they've had to stop anyway. But I felt like the schools rushed this. And yet now we're going to possibly reward Washington to go to a bowl game with a 3-1 and record? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Makes zero sense to me. Uh, by the way, Stanford uh, became the first Pac-12 school yesterday or to say that they aren't going to play in a bowl game even if they were invited. You know, we've had teams in the ACC do that. Boston College, Pittsburgh, and Virginia all said, you know, even if we get invited, we're not going. You know, and Boston College managed to play their entire season. They played all 11 games. You know, and one of the schools I feel badly for, by the way, is Coastal Carolina. Talked about it yesterday. They're, what, ranked in the top 10. They're number nine. They're 11-0, and 0, and they're going to get hosed by teams from power conferences that made decisions not to play early in the season and then – came late to the party. Coastal Carolina has been there the entire time, has played, has, you know, taken on whoever they got to take on. You know, like perfect example was scheduling that BYU game at the last minute and then beating a pretty good BYU team. They're 11 and 0 and they're going to get hosed. They probably, do you know what? They should be one of those four teams in the college football championship. I know they'd get killed. I know they would. I'm afraid to say that, but I'm, you know, I'm, they would probably get hammered, but they earned it. You know, if, if your school was going to make that decision from the very beginning that we're going to play, we're going to figure out how to make this work and they made it work. They should be rewarded for that instead of rewarding these traditional powerhouse teams that came late to the party. Just my opinion. And I'm sure most of you probably disagree with me, but I just feel that there are schools that did it the right way that are going to get penalized, and some of these premier schools are getting a pass. Uh, one other college football note. 
Uh, Sarah Fuller, we didn't we didn't talk about that on the show uh, when she did it uh, last week, and I, and I apologize for that. But Sarah Fuller, of course, the uh, soccer player from Vanderbilt who came on and became the first uh, female to score in uh, major college football. It, you know, when she did it for, for Vanderbilt against Tennessee, kicked a couple of extra points, which is just, that's just cool and good for her. I mean, I'm a, I'm the father of two daughters. Would I want my daughters playing football? Well, hell no. But, you know, look, good for her. Well, she was supposed to have one more game. They were supposed to play Georgia on Saturday, but the game has been canceled now uh, because of COVID-19 issues. So since that was the last game on their schedule, Sarah Fuller's football career is over. Uh, you know, And for Vanderbilt, look, they were 0-9. They were going to get crushed by Georgia. It doesn't really matter. It just would have been one more chance uh, for Fuller to play. Uh, and she's on the soccer team there. The Don't forget, the NCAA moved the women's soccer championships to the spring. Uh, so she is still going to play soccer for Vanderbilt. She's their starting goalkeeper uh, in the NCAA tournament come this spring. And then she is transferring to North Texas State. Uh, she is going to be pursuing her master's degree uh, at North Texas. She still has two years of eligibility left, and she's planning on playing soccer uh, at North Texas, but she has no plans to play football there. She did say she'll be available if they, if they need her. But uh, uh, So Sarah Fuller's uh, short college football career is over, but uh, still great, great accomplishment for her. So uh, congratulations on that. It's a shame your last game got canceled, but congratulations. Um, NCAA announced yesterday that they are going to move the women's tournament this year to one location. They had already said that they were going to move the men's tournament to Indianapolis and have everybody at one site, which, again, right move. It's absolutely the right thing to do. Um, and now they are going to do the same thing for the women's tournament. The entire thing will be in San Antonio. Um, Gina Oriema piped up yesterday, the UConn coach, and said, you know, it, it makes sense. You know, he said, you know, that's the, the positive to it is that, you know, there's one set of protocols for an entire state, you know, and that would have been the issue, really. And I think for both the men and the women, you look at it, it if you're flying to different parts of the country, every state has different protocols, what they will and won't allow. Look what happened in the NFL with the San Francisco 49ers aren't even playing the, their final home games in their own stadium because of the restrictions in California. So, you know, that would have been a problem. So I, I think this this mitigates that, and uh, it gives the NCA by making that decision now, they have plenty of time to work with the state of Texas to make this happen. Now, they said it's going to be the host site, but they are probably still going to uh, move teams to other parts of the state, like they might have some games in Austin. Um, you know, because of the fact that San Antonio – probably isn't going to have enough hotel rooms for 64 teams, you know, plus the officials, uh, if they do decide to allow some fans in, I mean, they're just, there's going to be a hotel issue. So they're going to have to move some games uh, to other parts of the state. And that could be awesome. But again, the good news there is that at least it's the same state and the protocol should be the same. So uh, smart move, smart move. Uh, top 25 came out for the women yesterday. No change. Uh, Stanford stays number one. Uh, and by the way, uh, Tara Vanderveer, the head coach for Stanford, uh, with a win over uh, 
California kept Stanford unbeaten, uh, and they play tonight against Pacific. And if uh, they win that game, which they should, uh, Vanderveer will pass Pat Summit as the all-time coaching winner in NCAA women's basketball history with uh, 1,099. Uh, pretty impressive. Stanford got 26 of the 30 first-place votes. Uh, Louisville, the number two team, got one. UConn is ranked third. They got one first-place vote, and uh, North Carolina State got a couple. <coughs> Former number one, South Carolina State at number five. Uh, matter of fact, the top uh, 11 teams all stay the same. Uh, so uh, UConn plays tonight. They take on uh, the UConn women play against Seton Hall tonight, their Big East opener. Uh, it's a team that they, over the years they have handled easily. They lead the all-time series 51-10. to 10. Uh, They played last December. UConn won that game by 14. Um, the game is uh, on SNY tonight. If you're in New England, you can watch that. Uh, it's also going to be on locally here in Connecticut on uh, 97.9 FM ESPN. Uh, but it's going to be fun to watch, and uh, we saw – you know, UConn didn't get much of a test against UMass Lowell, nor did we expect one. But it's going to be fun to watch tonight. Uh, you know, Paige Beckers, how is she going to do in her first Big East game? She didn't show a lot of nerves as a freshman in her first game, shooting 8 of 11 from the field. Um, this is a much bigger UConn team. They've got a size advantage tonight. The one thing I think that Gino Ariema is going to look for tonight is to have this team shoot better from the outside. Their three-point shooting was not very good. They really need Anna Makarot to step up. I am really beginning to think uh, as much as, uh, you know, she, she tries. And, and I like her. I like her game. I think sometimes uh, uh, she passes up shots when she gets open shots. But I think that uh, you might find that Makarot is going to uh, – her playing time is going to get diminished with some of these young freshmen on this team. If she can't start hitting the outside shots, and that's what they need her to do, if she can't do that, um, you know, she's big. She's a 6'2 guard, which is a big advantage for UConn. But if she can't start nailing shots from the outside, uh, her playing time might get reduced. Uh, one other Big East note, uh, the UConn men's team will play this weekend – their first UConn or their first Big East game this weekend, um, but the Big East came out yesterday and said that they are going to keep things the same for now. They're going to keep their travel model, no bubble. They're going to keep, you know, right now UConn is scheduled to play against Creighton at noon, and then they're supposed to play at DePaul on the twenty third. And as of right now, that's what's going to continue with the Big East. But uh, uh, Val Ackerman. The uh, conference commissioner said yesterday, if the outbreaks get any worse, they are going to consider perhaps doing something, shifting to a bubble venue such as Mohegan Sun, uh, if that happens. So, uh, But I'm sure that the boys are anxious to get back at it. They have been sidelined because of coronavirus issues, uh, and uh, they will be anxious to get back against Creighton here this Sunday. Uh, one NCAA game last night, an old friend of mine, Steve Peichel, the head coach at Rutgers, uh, Steve and I work together at uh, Central Connecticut. Uh, right now, this Rutgers team <laughs> looking pretty impressive. They beat number. Uh, they are number nineteen in the country. They beat Maryland yesterday in their Big Ten opener, seventy-four to sixty. They are now five and zero. This was a game that was close. Rutgers opened it up with a 10-0 run midway through the second half. Ron Harper with uh, nineteen of his twenty-seven points in the second half. And uh, Steve Peichel, great coach, guy who played at UConn, 
coached at UConn, coached at Central, coached at Stony Brook, and now has that Rutgers job. And uh, they are going to be a handful in the Big Ten this year. So congratulations to uh, Steve getting the first Big Ten win and getting it on the road. That's even better. It is 48 minutes past. Yeah, we're going to take one more break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It's 51 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to The Wake Up Call. Just a a few minutes left here this morning. I just saw something on Twitter uh, during the break, and this is supposedly going to happen. This is bizarre. Um, CBS and Nickelodeon are teaming up for a simulcast of a wild card game on January 10th that is going to be geared for younger viewers. So <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, I mean, I, and it's going to be, uh, the pregame show is going to be a, a, like a, a SpongeBob SquarePants countdown special. I mean, what are they going to do? I, I mean, I, I hope I, I saw this. I hope this isn't really true, but they said, you know, like they're going to like is superimpose like, uh, you know, cartoonish kind of uh, graphics over the top of the NFL players to try to make it more appealing to young kids. Uh, okay. Um, so <laughs> I just breaking news. I'm not sure it's good breaking news, but breaking news nonetheless. Uh, the Red Sox with a free agent signing yesterday, and you'll pardon me if I don't get too excited over this. I suppose there is the potential that this could work out well for Boston, but I don't know. They signed Hunter Renfro yesterday to a one-year deal worth about $3 million bucks with incentives that could get up to about three and a half. Uh, and I guess there's a couple of options on the contract. So if he plays well, uh, the club will have a couple of options to retain him. Uh, Hunter Renfro is a guy that's got a lot of power, uh, but he is a he is an all-or-nothing kind of guy. He strikes out a ton. He struck out 154 times and about once every three times up in his career. That's a problem. Uh, last year with Tampa Bay – Played 42 games last year after being traded from San Diego to Tampa Bay. He hit 156 last year. 156. Uh, struck out 37 times in 122 at bats. So that's about once every three and a half times up. Uh, did hit eight home runs in 122 at bats. 22 runs batted in. Uh, you know, now the one thing he does do, I'll give him this, is he hits lefties extremely well. Since 2017, uh, he is 14th in the major leagues um, and, is, and, has, and has an OPS of 907 against lefties since 2017. So he hits lefties well, which is good considering that the fact that the other two starting outfielders on this Red Sox team, Andrew Benintendi and Alex Verdugo, are both left-handed hitters. So they needed a right-handed bat. I was hoping it was going to be George Springer. I wasn't quite looking for Hunter Renfro. Uh, so, so now one of the uh, guys on Twitter, they overlaid his spray chart from last year over Fenway Park, what he did in all his games. And based on what he did, what his spray chart was, he would have hit a ton of home runs in Fenway last year. He likes to pull the ball, uh, you know, so – which is going to play well, obviously, with that left field wall. 
but I am uh, not too excited about this. This is a guy, I mean, the best year he had was with San Diego back in 2018 when he hit 248. 248. Struck out, you know, 109 times in 400 at-bats. Uh, so, you know, and and that what worries me is that that might mean the Red Sox are not going to sign another outfielder. They're going to go with those three guys and maybe a J.D. Martinez as, you know, as a fourth outfielder in an emergency situation. That scares the hell out of me. It really does. Uh, you know, they've got some other things they have to address, including starting pitchers. Now, Corey Kluber, I guess, is going to throw for the Red Sox here coming up in a few days. Uh, he is still an intriguing uh, intriguing guy for me. If he's got anything left in the tank, man, I'll tell you what, I I would love to see the Red Sox take a flyer on Corey Kluber. You know, uh, that would be a great, you know, the problem with a guy like Kluber, you know, despite the injury, you would think he'd, he'd be willing to take a one-year deal, but you might have to pony up a, a two- or three-year deal to, to do it. But, boy, I'll tell you what, if you can get him for the right price, uh, it might be worth it. Now, they are also said to have interest in Jake Odorizzi and Rich Hill, uh, who pitched last year for the Minnesota Twins? Uh, I uh, look. Rich Hill is what forty-one, forty-two years old. I hope they don't go that route. I mean, he look. He's pitched pretty well in his career, but he's a soft-tossing lefty, and he's a guy that makes me want to run to the bat rack. You know, I, I think I could hit that guy. Uh, so maybe not, but you know what I mean. And they're supposedly interested in uh, uh, Tomoyuku Sugano, the guy that's just been posted from the Japanese league again crapshoot when you go after Japanese guys, so we'll see. Uh, one other signing from yesterday, the Kansas City Royals re-signed Greg Holland. Uh, Greg Holland is a kid out of North Carolina. Went uh, Actually went to the same high school as uh, my stepson's did. He went to uh, McDowell High School in Marion, North Carolina. Uh, Holland's a guy that was the closer for the Royals when they went to the World Series uh, in 2013 and 14. He's a guy that saved 47 and 46 games for them in back-to-back seasons. Uh, had some injury issues. Uh, missed all of 2016. Came back with Colorado and saved 41 games in 2017. Uh, signed with the Royals last year and pitched well. Uh, pitched to a 1-9-1 ERA. Saved six games for him. Had a whip of under one. Uh, so the Royals have decided that they are going to uh, retain his services and uh, they have signed him uh, to a one-year deal worth about $3 million bucks. So uh, good for Greg Holland. You know, nice to see. You love to see guys that have had injury, you know, issues like that bounce back. So, uh, And since he went to uh, the same school as my stepson, so I kind of uh, root for him a little bit. So that is going to do it for us here this morning. We'll be back tomorrow morning with another edition of the Wake Up Call. We leave you this morning with a little music from Jake Hoot and Kelly Clarkson. This was from The Voice. This is called Winter Song. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country.